Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. A major day of activism across the country as simultaneous rallies were held calling to defund the police. Over the summer, Black Lives Matter protests happened around the globe, which culminated with protesters demanding their respective governments defund police services by reducing department budgets and redistributing those funds towards essential social services that are often underfunded such as housing, education, employment, and mental health. There were also calls for governments to imagine alternatives to police forces and to explore community-led solutions to public safety while overhauling police training and oversight systems in order to ensure public accountability for officers' actions. Although it's not something we tend to think about a lot, legislative framework for nearly all policing, including how oversight of it works, is a provincial responsibility. And with Doug Ford's long history of mostly loving the police, if not always his leadership, the defund the police movement was definitely going to be something that he weighed in on in a way that, you know, not not too different from what you might expect. Uh, on today's episode, we're going to take a break from talking about how he's fucked up the COVID response and instead take a look at Doug Ford's government's record on policing and how he's responded to the calls to defund the police. We'll also speak with a special guest about what it's like to go to school in Fords, Ontario during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and I've spent years watching lawmakers at Queen's Park jostle around police reform legislation, and still I'm a bit bemused at the actual state of it. 
And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Candleland, and I once spent two and a half hours in line for a bobblehead so that I could ask then-Mayor Rob Ford how he reconciled his support for the police with his refusal to cooperate with their investigation of him. And this is Wag the Doug. A monthly podcast about Doug Ford. I don't believe in that for a second. I think we need a, a strong police within our communities. What we do need to do is have higher standards. We need to uh, focus on more training. I think I'm a big believer, as, as Chief Saunders always believed, uh, in community policing, get involved in, in the community, learning uh, more about your community. Uh, that, that's what I believe in, but uh, I just don't believe in, you know, uh, cutting uh, police budgets. I just never believed in that. So this was Doug Ford back in June, responding to a reporter's question about calls to defund the police. It's pretty safe to say that we, you know, most of us know Ford's stance on policing. So no one was really that surprised or, or, you know, holding their breath for a big dramatic policy change from him on this matter. However, the Ford government then actually spent the rest of the summer quietly announcing more funding for police services. On August 6th, they announced $6 million to boost the fight against crime. That was money that's redirected from funds forfeited to the province during criminal prosecutions, uh, which is a pretty normal thing. Lots of provinces do that. Ford was quoted in the press release saying, by cutting off the resources of these crooks and redirecting that money to our brave men and women in uniform, we will ensure our police can keep our streets safe and put violent criminals behind bars where they belong. I like that example because it really is, that's, if you want to know how Ford sounds when he's talking about policing, like that is, that's it. So four days later, on August 10th, the PCs announced another $6 million for new CCTV cameras, uh, which is part of the province's $106 million guns, gangs, and violence reduction strategy. And then on the 20th of August, they announced they'd spend $25 million to hire 200 more OPP officers. So all of this to say the PCs didn't buy into the defund the police movement and also didn't really seem to notice the Black Lives Matter marches at all. Well, they did do one thing. In October, without much fanfare, you know, just a press release, uh, the Ford government announced that Devin Clunas had been hired as Ontario's first Inspector General of Policing. Clunas was Canada's first Black police chief, heading up Winnipeg's force from 2012 to 2016. He's been a mostly a consultant in the years in between. He's responsible for setting up an Inspectorate of Policing, which will monitor police forces and police services boards to make sure they comply with the law and investigate complaints against individual officers. It's all part of a vague sort of rebrand of the province's police oversight system that the PC started last year. Although, like much of it, it's mostly copied and pasted from earlier liberal legislation to mend the systems for police accountability that the PCs put on hold when they took office. Under the liberals' version of the inspector general role, anyone who had been a police officer or a member of a police board couldn't be allowed to hold the inspector general post. However, when the PCs eliminated that requirement, they not only did that, but they hired a person so passionate about policing that he co-authored a children's book about it uh, and what a high career calling it is. So I didn't get a chance to take a look at this book yet. Jonathan, could you read me a bit of it just so me and the listeners can hear what it actually sounds like? 
Sure. The title, uh, it's uh, The Little Boy from Jamaica, A Canadian History Story by Devin and Perlene Clunas, illustrated by Emily Campbell. So in the course of a few pages, uh, Clunas describes his rise through the ranks of the Winnipeg police. I helped a lot of kids as a police officer. I taught them how to stay safe. I taught them how to be school patrol guards, and some of them even became police officers when they grew up. Have you ever had a police officer teach you safety tips? I hope you have. After many years of helping people, I got promoted. Do you know what a promotion is? That meant that I became a leader of other police officers. I got to help them. I did my best to take care of them so that they could go out and take care of kids by teaching them how to stay safe. I kept getting promoted until one day I applied to become the leader of all the police officers in our city. I applied to become the chief of police. That was different because a black person had never ever been a chief of police in Canada. My family and friends told me to try my best and I did. An amazing thing happened. I got promoted again and became the first black chief of police in Canadian history. Everyone was very happy. I learned that with hard work, help from others, and a belief in yourself, you can achieve your dreams. I don't want to question what is clearly an honest account of his experience as he sees it, and I certainly don't want to minimize the achievements of his life and career. But the book does provide insight into a view of societal breakthroughs as something primarily accomplished by individuals through personal responsibility, hard work, and good choices. Which probably doesn't make this 2017 picture book all that different from countless pieces of children's literature before it, but which does leave it feeling oddly dated at just three years old. In its values, it's kind of the kind of book you could imagine Doug Ford having grown up with. Or maybe really all of us. Yeah, so what is the point of the Inspector General role, and like, why didn't the Wynn government, when they came up with it, want a super earnest police officer to be in charge of it? I mean, I think in some ways it's obvious, right? If the point of it is an external uh, like oversight board, it shouldn't necessarily be packed with the exact same people that it's overseeing. That's the idea. I mean, the you know, even even the the PCs or news release announcing Clunas's appointment describes it as you know the inspectorate will operate at arm's length from government, and I'm not doubting it does. But you know, inspectorate will operate at arm's length from government to provide policing oversight and ensure effective policing services are provided to every community in Ontario. There's no fundamental reason a former police officer couldn't carry out these functions. But I do think you get a, a really deep sense of the original conception of it from the fact that they specifically wrote in law that no one who had ever been a member of police service or a member of a police services board could hold the position. It's not a progressive move, I suppose. It's pretty easy to argue. But it does remind me a bit of how Doug Ford uses Jamil Giovanni, who is his special advisor on community opportunities and was kind of the face of the PCs when it came to talking about race and policing this summer. Giovanni's in his early 30s, uh, and he wrote a book a couple years ago called Why Young Men Rage, Race, and the Crisis of Identity, which is about his upbringing in an immigrant neighborhood in Toronto and how he managed to escape the cycle of poverty and, and gangs and end up at Yale Law School. So he's controversial in sort of the same way that Jonathan was describing Clunas's book. He very much espouses the ideas of individual responsibility when it comes to race and poverty, the idea that if black men just work harder and, and you know pull up their pants, they'll succeed like he has, which you know very much ignores systemic racism and systemic poverty. Yeah, but he's a National Post columnist now, right? Like, tell us something he wrote recently. 
Just a few weeks ago, he did write about the defund the police movement. He has this kind of big long op-ed. It says things like the defund the police movement sweeping North America distracts from the reality that cops and communities need each other. He calls the movement a moral panic with radical and Marxist ideas. To be fair, that's probably that's probably as defined and replaced the National Post does while copy editing every single column. So he's pretty comfortably a National Post columnist, we can say. And he's become a bit of a golden boy for the Ontario PCs, too. There's lots of rumors that he's going to run for the party in the next election. So he's kind of being, you know, brought up through through the system. And he's, um, you know, he's become a useful guy for them because they can they can put him up to the podium when they have to face sort of tough questions about this subject. It's useful for conservative governments to have someone from the black community on their side, especially someone like Giovanni, who can talk the talk about wanting to empower people who look like him even if he's simultaneously advocating for policies that, you know, essentially limit their freedoms or keep the status quo power dynamic in place. I mean, of course, there's, there's no necessary correlation between a person's identity and their politics. I mean, you know, all kinds of people can fall all across the political spectrum. And those are, you know, very often, more often than not, they're, on, they're honest opinions, beliefs, perspectives. But, you know, as Allison notes, the question's always worth asking is, you know, who the people in power are listening to and why and who are they holding up and why? And are they actually seeking a new perspective or is it more just a new way of presenting a perspective that's substantially the same as the one that they already held, right? I mean, lots of people all the time have always gotten pretty far by finding new ways to articulate and advocate for the status quo. Not questioning, you know, Jamil Giovanni's dedication to his own own points of view. It's more, like you said, about who is this viewpoint useful for? And how is it being used to advance, you know, the causes of other people in power? Remember, it was Phyllis Schlafly who killed the Equal Rights Amendment. She was a woman and and didn't want women to have equal rights. And, you know, she had various reasons for this. But you know what? It got her far. It got her famous. And she was successful. It's not surprising. It's pretty well established that uh, you can get pretty far in life by being a champion of the status quo. I mean, that's pretty much the modus operandi of every newspaper columnist in the country. Not every, most of virtually every newspaper columnist in the country. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm interested in the you know general concept of why conservative governments love police so much. In many ways, it's a simple answer. Policing is a fundamentally conservative institution does things like make old white people feel safe, old white people being the majority of conservative lawmakers and voters. But it's still, you know, with <laughs> there's still such an obsession uh, with police and, and the military and, you know, the whole poppy thing the other week. Why is that? Is there more to it than just what I said? 
no, I, I mean, there are longer versions of what you just said, but you pretty much, I mean, you pretty much hit the nail on the head. I mean, the, the Fords have always been kind of unusual in that they were slash are conservative populists for whom the promise of security and of controlling immigration, for that matter, has never really been at the center of their strategy or appeal, even though, of course, it does come up now and again. For them, it's always been more about taxes and spending, but, you know, there's an obvious connection there. Even the most hardcore libertarians will typically believe that if a state has any value at all, it's to provide security and defense, and you can pretty much jettison the rest of it. Mainstream conservatism is, you know, pretty much just like a version of that dialed back a little bit. At Rob Ford City Hall, you know, you'd see police escape the kinds of budget cuts to which pretty much every other city function was subjected. On a national level, you see that with conservative governments and defense spending. And on an individual level, you see, well, a photo went through my Twitter feed last night of a New Jersey pickup truck with a pair of flags. One was like a thin blue line flag, uh, you know, especially, you know, solidarity with police. And the other was, uh, you know, those don't tread on me snake flags. Um, I don't think it's much of a great insight, but it's, as Al says, the correct one to say that these apparent contradictions can probably best be understood by looking at whose freedoms they demand to be protected and from whom. Yeah, because there is, you know, there there's a reckoning between like a love of policing and a simultaneous love of personal freedom, which has also come up in the COVID stuff all the time, right? For example, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who is also very much a conservative, uh, said this week that he won't let the enforcement of COVID restrictions turn Alberta into a police state. And and Doug Ford said the other day that if Justin Trudeau tried to enact any national emergency measures, that would be akin to a nanny state. I mean, I'd lo- I mean, I'd lo- I really we should spend more time with the psychology literature about all of this because it's so fascinating. And I mean, the very nanny state thing is so quite clearly Freudian, even if you don't subscribe to psychoanalysis. But um, but yeah, no, it's this idea of like, who is restricted? Where are these restrictions coming from? To what purpose? And it sometimes is a fundamental thing that probably most conservatives don't consciously have to think, ever really think about. But it's, you know, it's a matter of, you know, maximum liberty for me and people like me. And, you know, frankly, and they don't typically think of it in these terms, limiting the freedoms of other people to interfere with that, right? Right. Instead, they turn the rhetoric into like gangs and guns, guns and gangs like that. I can't even tell you many times Doug Ford has said that. Like that's actually the name of their policy program. Um, (laughs) Like you can't get more overt than that, in my opinion. It's strictly about placing controls and restrictions and limits on people characterized as the other. And uh, with guns and gangs, it's pretty clear to whom that refers. And I mean, it's white supremacy, which is not to say he's a white supremacist, but like the the ideology of, I mean, it's not just white supremacy. I mean, it's quite several different things wrapped up in this, but it's the idea of holding power where it is currently held. I think that can be tied actually like back to... Giovanni's National Post op-ed that we're talking about, because, you know, it is he's basically makes the argument that policing should stay the way it is, but that if you make like a few small reforms tinkering around the edges, that it'll somehow become better. This year, one of the most astonishing things I've ever seen in my life was the spectacular speed from which the idea of defunding police went from so radical it couldn't be, you know, mainstream outlets would not give it a platform to being a mainstream subject of discussion and something even conservatives in many cases, in some cases anyway, would adopt. Like in the course of a week, something went from 
being so radical, it was just outside of like the you know the Overton window or the, the the limits of possibility to being something that was very seriously being discussed, because I it very quickly became recognized that tinkering with these systems probably isn't going to have that much isn't going to help that many people in the long run and that what's needed is as we alluded to earlier alternative conceptions of how could and should a society protect its most vulnerable people what are police what might police continue to be useful for if anything and what are other ways to respond to people in distress or people with issues in ways that hopefully offer maybe more of a net positive or certainly fewer people dying. Right. And also, you know, coming up with a system where police officers that frankly kill people or or assault people are actually punished in a, you know, swift and uh, fair form of justice. And I guess like that really doesn't seem to be the case, especially in Ontario, but also especially a lot of places where, you know, it's really hard to to fire an officer. And it, on Ontario, it's it's just just wild. Like back in, I know it's one of the subjects I found myself revisiting back in June when you know those in, in Buffalo there were those uh, police officers that shoved that seventy five year old man to the ground. Very much appeared, very much appeared to be unprovoked act of violence, called very clearly caught on camera. Uh, and those officers were suspended without pay. Uh, that was in Buffalo. In Ontario, unlike Buffalo, unlike New York State, and unlike. Every other fucking jurisdiction in Canada, at least other provinces, I haven't looked into the territories. In Ontario, unlike every other province in Canada, there would be no legal grounds to suspend those officers without pay. You basically, you could murder someone during a shift, and that would not in and of itself be grounds for suspension without pay, let alone actually getting fired if you're a police officer. It's hard to think of any other employment in our society with remotely equivalent job security. And, like... Police unions are kind of what, well, they're not technically unions, but that's a whole other thing. But police unions are kind of like what people who hate unions imagine all unions to be in terms of basically dictating the terms of what should be a public service and effectively bestowing virtual uh, impunity, not to mention immunity from meaningful consequences. So basically in Ontario, the rule is a police officer can't be suspended without pay by a chief until they have been convicted of a crime and sentenced to a term of imprisonment. So if you think back to James Fursillo, who killed Sammy Yatim on that streetcar back in 2013, in early 2016, he was convicted by a jury of attempted murder. He couldn't be suspended without pay until over six months later when he was actually sentenced to jail. That's when he was able to be suspended without pay. And I can't remember if he resigned or what happened at that point. Um, the Liberals, under their legislation they proposed a few years ago, uh, would have changed, broadened this a little bit. And the PCs, uh, under their legislation, basically adopted virtually identical language. So it broadens it slightly to give a couple more circumstances in which a police officer could be suspended without pay. One is if the officer is in custody or on bail and such that basically they couldn't fulfill the terms of being a police officer. So basically... You know, if you're in jail, if you're under house arrest, probably you can't do your duties as a police officer, probably. Another is if a police officer is charged with a serious offense, and that hasn't quite been defined in regulations yet, uh, if they've been charged with a serious offense 
and the offense was not committed in relation to their the, the performance of their duties, and if the chief of police basically has commenced proceedings to seek their termination, and if in the, those proceedings would probably lead to them being terminated or resigning, and if a failure to suspend them without pay would bring discredit for the reputation of the police service. In other words, far from an overhaul of something that has really been one of the most embarrassing elements of Ontario's policing system, both the Liberals and the PCs have only very slightly tweaked it, slightly broadened it. And this is something that police chiefs want. Police chiefs, like pretty much all employers, want more power to discipline their employees as they see fit. But police unions are successfully uh, successful at advocating for this extraordinary and basically unparalleled level of job security. I mean, you'd assume that not paying public servants who are not at work uh, would appeal to conservative politicians. Uh, You know, I can't really think of a worse use of taxpayer money than that, but here we are. So what have the PCs accomplished with regard to policing? Yeah, so we touched on the liberal law that was, you know, aiming to reform police, which was spurred by 2016 Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, Themselves had been sparked in part by the SIU's decision to clear a police officer of wrongdoing in the fatal 2015 shooting of Andrew Loku. So the liberals had come up with the Safer Ontario Act, Bill 175. Um, it, It had appeared, you know, at the time that the Wynn government intended to take these Black Lives Matter protests seriously. They hired a former judge uh, to consult with communities, come up with this big report, which is known as the Tulloch Report, which is full of recommendations that all kind of got funneled into Bill 175. Um, And, you know, it's a bunch of stuff that we already talked about before. Um, One of the things it would have required the SIU to report publicly on all of its investigations and release the names of officers that were charged. You know, again, lots of tinkering around the edges sorts of things. Uh, One thing that was notable, which I 90 percent certain has been pulled from the PC's, you know, later version of the bill, which we'll get to, is that it would have allowed private security officers to provide security services at construction sites and community events, which was like deeply unpopular with the police unions. Um, You know, anyone who ever looks at the Ontario Sunshine List will notice a very large number of police officers on it. And that is mostly because, you know, they they have a, a good salary to begin with. But I think that the salary is lower than the sunshine list cap. However, they are allowed and encouraged to do a lot of overtime work, you know, standing at a construction site or, you know, going to a parade. And the the liberals (laughs) kind of said, we don't actually need cops to do all of this. But even the NDP actually opposed on, you know, I guess they like unions. So they did not want they call that privatizations. Uh, I mean, yeah, the PCs didn't never like Bill 175, the Safer Ontario Act. They called it anti-police. They complained it treated every cop as a potential criminal. So the chief differences between the Liberals' Safer Ontario Act and the PC's COPS Act, which for you backronym enthusiasts is officially the Comprehensive Ontario Police Services Act, the differences are mainly in the details. The bills are in fact so similar in so many respects that I had to sort of put their respective official explanatory notes to a text comparison website in order to just flag all the different places where changes were actually made. And frankly, I think it says more about the Liberals' original legislation than the PC's relative deference to it. That is, like, Liberals, generally speaking, are incrementalists. The Safer Ontario Act would 
undoubtedly have strengthened the systems of police oversight and accountability in this province, but not in any radical way. It prescribed, in a lot of ways, you know, just a bit of rejigging and tweaking of the systems that were already in place. A, a net improvement, for sure, but, you know, calling it an overhaul was always a bit of an overstatement, as far as I'm concerned. And the PCs, well, when they're not outright, you know, smashing something, which thankfully wasn't what they did here, they're into, like, increments of increments. So, like, how the liberals wanted to get the minimum wage to $15, and they did that by raising it from eleven forty in 2017 to fourteen in 2018, and then we're going to raise it to fifteen in 2019. The PCs, you know, defeated the liberals midway through 2018, and so the minimum wage got stuck at $14 up until last month when it went all the way up to $14.25. That's kind of what happened with the police legislation. You know, small differences, small differences that in some circumstances will be hugely consequential and that do make a difference in people's lives. But there's still small differences that resulted from a partial rollback of a policy that wasn't especially bold in the first place. Well, and I think what's interesting about that is that the the Ford government's rhetoric on it hasn't changed, right? Like they will still call that bill anti-police and they will still accuse the liberals of treating every police officer like they're always under suspicion. So, you know, to them, in some ways, it's almost like, I guess it seems like posturing is, is the point. And, you know, acting like you support the police is inherently the most important part about supporting the police. Like that seems to be my takeaway from a lot of what we talked about. And that I think that's why the, the defund the police movement is such a threat because it's, you know, the complete opposite of holding up the police's authority and respect. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't it doesn't presume that it's a system that is working that only needs a bit of tinkering. Now, there's probably some change in here that is a huge deal to police that is something that I'm just probably I'm, I'm just totally missing because it doesn't something that doesn't seem like a big deal at all, but to them it's like oh it's all the difference. So maybe for example not uh, you know not interfering with their extracurriculars. Maybe that was the big thing that pissed them off. Uh, but like you can see you can learn a lot about how the police see these things by reading the newsletters of their professional associations. One of the main lobbying bodies is the Police Association of Ontario, which is you know kind of an umbrella group for most of the provinces police unions, which once again aren't technically unions, but we won't get into that. And anyway, the PAO puts out a quarterly magazine. In the fall 2018 edition, the PAO's president reflected on the sway they held with the then new Ford government, which at the PAO's urging had cancelled the Liberals' SIU reforms just before they were to take effect. The SIU is once again the Special Investigations Unit, which is the agency called in to investigate in any case where police are involved in an incident that has resulted in someone's serious injury or death. Um, so what the president wrote was the fact that we were able to have this request granted, with the new government only having formally been in power for a few hours, demonstrates the impact of our post-election communications and the power of our advocacy efforts. Which is actually definitely true um, that they, if I recall correctly, so the Liberals Bill 175 that we had talked about before was set to come into force after Doug Ford had, and his cabinet had been sworn in. But before they'd even done their throne speech was when, you know, the media found out that they had scrapped the, the you know, proclaiming that part of the law. And we found out through uh, the police associations, 
either a letter, I think it was a, a press release they'd sent to their members. So it wasn't even like the Ford government came out and said it. It was like we just found out about it because the police union was talking about it, which I mean, is kind of just also an indictment of or, or a description of what uh, media relations were like during the early Ford government. And in another article on that same issue of the PAO's quarterly magazine, as the fall 2018 one, the, the, their legal counsel explained how Ford's government presented, as the article's headline described it, new opportunities. Uh, unlike the liberals, he wrote the Ford government had an extremely strong level of respect for police personnel, and he took those liberal forms to task, saying they were positioned as an effort to drag an archaic system into the present and to ensure that the police, who were thought to be behind the times in many ways, were modernized. He put, he put modernized in quotes. This outlook is in contrast with the reality that police services are already thoroughly modern operations and Ontario's are among the best in the world. The narrative that around much of the reforms that went into Bill 175 was that the public was having a crisis in confidence in the police. This so-called crisis of confidence, he wrote, was manufactured by a small segment of the population and was not reflective of the relationship between the police and communities across the vast majority of Ontario. Premier Ford and his cabinet appear to trust the police far more than their predecessors did by operating within this context, rather than one where the policy drafters were suspicious of police, we will hopefully be able to guide the government to making a true police positive piece of legislation. Uh, it seems like they did. <laughs> the COPS Act was, uh, you know, the, the the PAO was generally supportive of the COPS Act. Uh, there hasn't, there wasn't a lot of backlash to it. The PCs were able to, you know, pass it pretty handily. And it kind of like climate change, it has become something that's sort of fallen out of the conversation at Queen's Park. Uh, you know, whereas I could imagine that if we had a different government in place over this summer, that there would be you know, some more action taken than, uh, I mean, again, like kind of quietly just sending more money to police forces like we detailed at the beginning of the episode. And, you know, again, in that way, like that move, they weren't trying, the PCs weren't trying to get attention or headlines for that. It really seemed like they just wanted to make the police and the, the stakeholders in the police sector know that they cared. Like that, again, is like that's the posturing once again. Part of it's a division of powers thing, frankly, because, you know, if you or someone in your family are somehow involved with the education system or somehow involved in the healthcare system, you know, you, you probably have a really good understanding that the province is responsible, is chiefly responsible for that. With most other elements of society, whether we're talking about environmental regulation or policing, chances are on a given day, you're not thinking about what the province has to do with this. And that absence, that fact that unlike, unlike the federal government, unlike municipal governments, people aren't immediately clear about what their responsibilities entail, really does allow a government to dictate what things get talked about and what things don't get talked about. And as Allison says, basically, if they don't really want to do much around the environment, they don't really have to. And there's not a lot to basically point out the conversations we're not having. If they don't really want to do a lot around fixing policing, they don't really have to. And even when we're talking, even during a month when we're pretty much talking about nothing but the police, you know, they can just wait it out. And once again, basically, the status quo prevails and most people still spend their time thinking about 
their municipal police force or the federal government. It's like, it's this really wild in-between space that provinces have that really allows them, it really allows premiers to dictate what do they want to get involved with and more than that, what do they want to be seen to be involved with and seen to be doing. And that, that flows outward into the sort of conversations we have. So month after month, we have been talking about and worrying about the Ford government's COVID response, you know, from his media relations techniques to the disaster in long-term care homes to how the pandemic has been hitting low-income and racialized communities and even, you know, Halloween. But one thing we've been, you know, meaning to talk about and hadn't really got a chance to is how the pandemic has been impacting school-age kids and their teachers. Then, a few weeks ago, a comment was left on one of Candleland's Instagram posts about Wag the Dog. My 11-year-old is obsessed with this show if you need a primary school correspondent. Yes, we thought, we do. Or at least, we wanted to know if there was, in fact, an 11-year-old who was obsessed with Wag the Dog, and if so, why? So, via Zoom, we met Henry, an elementary school student in the Toronto District School Board. Hi, Henry. Nice to meet you, Henry. It, it seems like you're pretty adept at uh, using Zoom and all this tech stuff. Um, how much of that happened since you had to stop going to the school in the spring? Well, after we stopped going to school, we had to do the online learning. And we do like a weekly like Google Meets. But then I try and do like a daily Zoom with my friends. So we just kind of got used to having to use it and stuff. How has school been in the last, I guess, since March? It's been different. Like, we've had, like, outside, which we've never done before. And I think everyone's adapting really well to it, but it's still new to even the teachers. And and since school started again in September, have you been in going back to class? Yeah, we've just started going inside the school, and it's masks on all the time everyone's trying to be really safe but then we're usually outside and sitting on stumps that sounds nice which is it's mm-hmm. it's all right but if you don't dress right it's just very cold for the whole day is that going to continue through the winter what is the plan there i think we're going to move inside for the winter and a lot of the regulations will have to sh- like we'll have to develop something new but for now, we're mostly outside. Has your school felt safe? Do you know, like, have they told you about any cases at your school or anything? There has been one case, but, like, public health did an investigation, and in one day it was cleared up. And do you have any worries about, like, what will you think if schools close again? I don't want to have to go back to online learning, because it's just, you spend most of your time just staring at a computer screen and doing like you always have to be checking the google classroom thing like there's more work and it takes the fun out of seeing your friends do you feel like the school has been sort of reasonably well organized when it comes to all of this or has it been a bit bumpy i think everyone's doing the best they can with the resources they have yeah i bet So we heard that you like listening to our podcast. I do. Can you tell us about that? My dad supports Canada Land, and I wanted to learn more about politics, so I decided to listen to that. And through the Canada Land podcast, I found out about Wag the Doug, which is Ontario politics. And then I was like, that is something I would like to know more about. 
Well, because I knew about Rob Ford because he was the inventory. So I always have heard like about the Fords, but then there was Doug Ford and I didn't know that much about him. And then I started learning, well, from my parents and from you guys. Yeah, we were initially like, you know, quite intrigued by your dad's comment on on Instagram about, uh, yeah, but you just being really into the show. And we sort of yeah, wondered, like, what is it about the show that appeals to an 11 year old? And I guess beyond just like learning about politics, what, yeah, what about it appeals to you? Well, I just get to learn more about what directs, what affects me like directly. Like you guys commenting, commentating on Doug Ford. He's the one that runs the schools, like he's at the top and he runs the schools, he runs all the stuff that I'm doing. So I want to know more about that. And what's your general opinion on on Doug Ford? I don't really like him. He's cut school a lot and that's we need education funding. And this at the school I go to, I like it and I like all the people there, but it's like kind of falling apart and the budget cuts are not what we need. Like we, in fact, we need more funding. I think that Doug Ford just needs to do better to help everyone. Is there anything else you that you'd like to share? I would say instead of trying to reopen things, you need to shut more things down because the case numbers, like they're exploding and that's not good that's not what we want during like a pandemic we don't want to have we don't want to get like a hundred thousand cases a day that's like like a fraction of the people in toronto will just get the virus and we don't we can't have that i think he was doing well at the start like doing what should be expected of somebody who's expected to leave a province And, like, he was listening, like, he was just doing, he was saying some of the things that public health had said, but right now, I don't think he's doing very well. Yeah, that's consistent with my opinion as well. Thank you so much, Henry. And I hope your school stays open. Well, thank you so much. So just under a month ago, an email came in to uh, myself and Andrea, uh, addressed hi, podcasters, uh, which is flattering because I'm not usually called a podcaster. And they had a suggestion. Basically, uh, we at the end of every episode, we give our predictions for a foreseeable disaster of the month, or as I like to say, foreseeable disaster of the month, etc. And as this gentleman pointed out, there's already so much to feel down about in the news. Could you please also give us a best case scenario prediction for something that will play out over the next month? Hope you will consider. I think it's a good suggestion. So this month we'll try foreseeable disaster of the month and or perhaps best case scenario of the month. And we'll see what kind of overlap there may be. Or at least we'll talk about nicer things that might happen from bad things. I think I was able to handle this assignment pretty. Uh, I tried to, to you know, land somewhere in the middle of disaster best case, although I don't know um, how much of it's going to actually uh, matter this month. But I do really think it's worth noting on the show that the government, the Ontario government, released its first full budget since the pandemic hit uh, about a week and a half ago. So there are many foreseeable disasters embedded in it, including a total lack of funding for the long-term care overhaul that the PCs promised. But I also think that there is something kind of generally positive in the fact that 
the budget exists and appears to be prudent and, and realistic and You know, the finance ministry is doing its job uh, as it should. It's making realistic projections about how the province's economy is going to look over the next three years. So, like, that's something that the federal government hasn't even done yet. (laughs) I mean... I guess I'm, I'm not as enthusiastic about, I guess, the, the integrity of on-paper budgeting. But I guess but the, the important thing is we haven't heard of anything crucial that's been that they've set on fire in the last week and a half, right? I think just in a general high-level sign that the world is not completely burning on fire, at least to me in my Queen's Park reporter hat, was, you know, opening this budget on budget day and feeling like this isn't totally insane numbers that don't make any sense. Like this appears like a real solid document, although it forecasts a 38 point $5 billion deficit. I'm okay with that as long as, you know, the, the world is still not completely on fire. I don't know. Is that that's optimistic. So what's your foreseeable disaster or uh, best case outlook? The best case scenario is that Doug Ford just totally fucking extricates himself from any sort of planning around COVID-related responses. There was a piece that I've been thinking, I think about a lot in, in um in vol- on like vulture.com slash New York magazine back earlier this year, toward the beginning of the pandemic, where they got a bunch of TV writers and showrunners to imagine how the characters in their shows would deal with COVID. Uh, and one of them was David Mandel, who was the showrunner of Veep for the last three seasons. He wrote his explanation of what would happen as an excerpt from a fictional Robert Caro biography of President Selena Meyer. Um, and basically, it recounts how Selena Meyer, who in the show, the Julia Louis-Dreyfus character, is basically, certainly by the end, a sociopath uh, and absolutely a narcissist. Basically, he explains how... Despite her being just like a terrible person and a terrible leader, even she would know enough to hand off responsibility to the people who actually knew what they were doing and would know how to handle the situation. In that case, it was um, the character Richard Splett, who was the um, the uh, expert on everything. But basically, the idea that all it really would take to competently manage a pandemic, to do just like a decent job, is deferring to the experts doing what they say and the less you fucking meddle with that chances are you will get pretty much the best outcome you could get and we saw in the spring was doug ford was seemed to be at least pretty deferential to the public health advice about shutting shit down now he seems actively hostile to that that advice and we've we see the effects day to day and we only know things are going in one direction because for whatever combination of reasons, he seems to no longer be interested in what he's being advised by the people who know what they're talking about. So once again, the best case scenario of the next month is that Doug Ford no longer has a say in how the problem responds to COVID and what we should or should not do and leaves it up to the public health experts to uh, dictate those terms with sound scientific bases. That was Wag the Dog, a show about posturing in favor of the police. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queens Park Today. Our producer is Damilola Oname, our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener supported. If you like what we do, support us. Go to wagthedog.com or click the link in the show notes. Change, oh, 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 oh.
Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 